speaker system here is fantastic. Um, no, thank you. Uh, speaking of which, is this room acoustically fantastic or what? This is incredible. It just, God really gave you, uh, whoever designed your facility where, where I, he did right by you guys. This is fantastic. And there is nothing like being with a room where uh, at least a significant portion of people are in full-time vocational ministry and just praising God together. Um, it's encouraging, it's invigorating, uh, and it's been a joy to worship with you guys. And to the worship team, just uh, so much gratitude. I don't know where they are, just so grateful for you guys and the way you've led us to the Lord. I want to tell you a couple of things before I, I get into our study, and I, I am going to be restrained on time. Just, I mean, I'm going to try. I, I, I haven't done great with this. I usually am pretty good on time, but um, I want you to know what it's like as an outside person coming in and getting to know your network a little bit. It, it is exciting. It really is exciting. It is exciting to see what God has brought together. I've been in a lot of pastors' groups and meetings. You have something very special here. You really do. Um, the fellowship, the, uh, the vision. I mean, just listening to Jim talking about the idea of the, the, the unique, creative way of training pastors and that you pastors are a part of that. It, it's fantastic. I don't know anything like it. And I, I think God has really given you um, vision, uh, oneness, unity, encouragement. You're a movement that is bringing in new pastors and churches. Most movements are going the other way. I mean, it's just been exciting for me as a guy that's been in ministry for a while to just be a part of something that is very, very special. And I, it's sometimes when you're in the middle of it, you don't know how cool it is. It's cool. And uh, it's exciting to be a part of. And to have your leadership like Jim and Brian and, and the other guys I've, I've heard that are part of the team, it's just it's a great thing God has given you and very exciting to see. Gratitude, um, just Tim and Barb, I mean... The oatmeal raisin cookies, over the top, over the top. But from the first time I've been communicating with Tim, I mean, he just, you know him, he just communicates like you're his friend for life, and he's done that for me. And just the welcome that has been here has been incredible. And I just want to um, really rejoice with you in... Maybe the part that has been most meaningful to us has been time with, with you guys and just over meals or in between meals or catching. Um, your stories have encouraged us. The faithfulness to the Lord, um, just hearing a little bit of things that are going on, uh, it's, it's been a special gift to us and we're grateful for the invitation to be here. I'd like you to turn with me, not surprisingly, to Psalm 34 this morning, and I'll tell you at the outset what we're going to do, and I'll also tell you that if you're looking at your outline, you're going to see the verses of Psalm 34 from the ESV, that's the translation they're written in here and that I'm reading from, but we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 14. The reason for that is in Psalm 34, verses 1 through 14, I think are really talking about how you fear God. And verses 15 to the end are talking about the fruit of that. Um, but I'd like to read verses 1 to 14 because today we've talked about David's fear in our first sermon. We've talked about how David believed that what brought you deliverance from fear was fear, the awe of God, the fear of God. We've talked about David's passion in verse 11 to want to teach people to fear God and to be awed by Him. And now let's, let's see as we try to get a template for living a life of awe in verses 1 to 14. I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. 
O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Father, we come and bring ourselves now before the Scriptures. Lord, do what it seems is Your delight to do. To take Your Word, to speak it into our lives, to begin just a little bit more, even for the next half an hour, to shape our thinking, to adjust our attitudes, to draw us under this Word, which, as we were reminded of yesterday, is our ultimate, true authority for faith, practice, life. So God, guide us to that end, even as we seek to let David do what he asked. Uh, listen to me. So teach us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to look at some characteristics as we walk down through these 14 verses that I think David is telling us are a part, part by practice, part by admonition. But David is basically doing, as he does with his psalms, as they are teaching tools that we used as songs, of course, in worship. They were also uh, teaching vehicles for the people through that experience. And David, I think, is teaching us some lessons on living a life of all. First thing is what we would probably expect. It is a life that it focuses on God. Verses 1 to 3, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David says the way you need to live your life, the way you need to orient your life is to lean into God. Continually, habitually. That there is a desire to have God become bigger to us. That Praise is simply expressing our adoration to God. You may have found this to be true. I know it is in my own experience. The most powerful moments I have with God are actually, for me, walking and praying out loud and praying uh, praise just talking to God about who He is, it, it, it inevitably leads me to other things that I want to cast on the Lord. But the habit of just praising God and thinking, God, you're this, you're this way, you, you've, you've declared this from the beginning, that there is a focus that He says needs to be an intentional reality in our lives to lean into God. I think it is one of the ways that God becomes bigger in our lives. Years ago, I was at a uh, university out in the Midwest, Christian University, but um, God, through Carl Algina, who was my pastor, um, said when I started, my heart started really turning towards Jesus, and uh, it really was while I was at college that happened, and he sensed God was really stirring. He says, you need Bible, and... and uh, as only he could do, he got me up here. I stayed at his house in Thompson for, you know, his home-cooked spaghetti dinner and took me over to BBC, and I transferred there. 
And I came in, and I was actually a senior. I had three years of college already, and I had been a history major. I wanted to either, initially I went with the thought I was going to be a history teacher and uh, a coach, and then I was beginning to think maybe I'm going to, this would be something I'd go into law, I was a little bit interested in that. And uh, so I came to BBC, and I was loaded with history courses. I had taken an unusual amount in, the amount, in my first three years, even taken them in, back in my second year during when you were typically just doing, you know, the regular staple courses. So I had a lot of history courses. And I came, and I went to the registrar, and they said... Uh, well, here's a question you need to take, Intro to Western Civ. And I said, Intro to Western Civ, is that like the intro course to history? They said, yeah, yeah, everybody takes it. I said, well, I, and I still pulled out my resume, and, I, and I, I went through, I've had hours and hours of history courses. And there was this, this, this obvious glazed expression, an expression like, okay, you have no idea what you are about to enter into, buddy. And so they said to me, well, you need to talk to Dr. Carter, all right? <laughs> Dr. Rembrandt Carter. So I went into Dr. Carter, and I, I mean, I, I did, it never crossed my mind I wasn't going to win this. I, it was just, okay, <laughs> I'll take the second, I'll, take the, I'll, I'll do what they're saying, I'll take a second step, I'll talk to the, Dr. Carter. So I went in, and I, I did my spiel, very tellingly, um, effectively, and he just nodded, and he said, ah, boy, you've had a lot of history courses, Mark. <laughs> he, just, he just set me up, and I, oh, yeah. He said, just, just one course, just one simple question. He says, what would you say is a uniquely Christian view of history? Now, that's not a hard question, right? It was for me. And I thought, well, I'm well, and I, I actually stammered out, well, I know there's the economic view of history, the cyclical view, I knew some of the theories of history. And I said, well, I, well uniquely Christian. I said, I, I, I guess I'm not aware. I, I guess I, I don't know, and this is just how I talked to him. I, I, I guess I don't exactly know a uniquely Christian view of history. And he got that twinkle in the eye. He says, I'll see you in Western Civ. <laughs> it was the best course I've ever had in my life. He presented to me a view of history that was dominated by a big God. I fell in love with the God of Dr. Carter in my world, which was history. I love history. I loved history. He gave me a unique view, Christian view of God, that history is his story. And it was, I think, the first time in my young fledgling, and I was, I was hot for Jesus, and, and, I, and I really wanted him. And, but I didn't know beans in a barrel about theology or biblical truth. But, but that taste of God being big, so permeated into my, I mean, I took everything Dr. Carter offered everywhere. I, I got books from Dr. Carter. I got, I got reference. He led me into, as he called it, wanting to be a big godder. And I found that it was that orientation in the early years of church planning when I wondered if this thing would ever really make it. And then into the, the growth of our church at the various stages, each with their setbacks, you know, two steps forward, one step back, sometimes two steps forwards, three steps back. But you keep going by the grace of God. But in those times, how God would lead me to J.R. Packard's Knowing God, Carnock's uh, Puritan's two-volume, The Existence and Attributes of God, I was reading about God. I wanted to learn more about God. I, I, I needed to know more about the bigness of God. And what I didn't know until many years later was what God was doing was awing me. He was making me a God-fearer. I didn't know that. I didn't have that terminology. 
You have that experience. And maybe you've never affixed to it or put it under the umbrella with the phrase, I'm growing in the fear of God. But you are. You're getting awed by God. And the, the, the thing that, that David is saying to us here, you never outgrow that. You never graduate. As a matter of fact, this story, when he's had this failure that led to Psalm 34, is a reminder that even David had moments when he needed to be brought back. It's, it's being awed by God that sustains me in my life of godliness. It's what drives me in my passion for ministry. It's God. And there is no second option. There's no second curtain. We have a guy on our staff, young guy, he's only 25 years old. He has four older brothers. He's the youngest of four, five, five boys. They are all tall. I hate standing with them. I'm usually, I feel like I'm usually taller. I'm, I'm with these five guys, and I find, literally find myself going like this. I just, I, I never knew what it was like to be shorter until I get with this gang. But it's a rough background in some ways. Two of his brothers, very, very heavily into drug. One is a fairly significant drug pressure in Philadelphia. And this guy, Jared, stepped out of that world wholeheartedly, completely in with Jesus, has been for a number of years, and I was talking with him. He preached this past Sunday, and he was preaching Acts 27. We've been going through the book of Acts, and we were going over a sermon last week, and he was just telling me where it was going, and it's all about a shipwreck, and and all the things that went on with this. And, and I, I was so excited listening to his message. Because, you know, there's so many ways you can take sermons, right? And so many things. Where I listened to him, he had gone back into Acts. And he'd heard what God had promised Saul, I mean Paul, and, and all these things. And, and he was talking about how the circumstances. And he said, what's happening? is God's doing this, and God's doing this, and God's arranging this. And last night I used a phrase when I was preaching. I said there are no setbacks with God. I'm going to tell you quite honestly, I stole that from Jared's message last Sunday. Jared said, and he's standing up there, six foot five or six, and he's just passionate, and, and he's just saying, guys, and that's how he talks, guys, there are no setbacks with God. There are no setbacks. He's just saying it over and over. And I'm just emotionally thinking, how does this kid know this? How is this kid living out of this one way? He's encountering God. And so his preaching is becoming big Godderish. It's focusing on not just, okay, you know, what are the six principles? For me, that I need to do in my life, there's parts of that in all preaching. But that it's ultimately God's story. We grow in leaning into God, but we also lean away from us. Verse 2, David says this, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. My soul makes its boast. He says, man, what, what I got to boast about is God. It's like Paul there in 2 Corinthians when he says, you know, all this stuff that's hard for me. And the Lord says, Paul, it's not in your strength that I show my glory. It's not in my strength where I show myself strong. It's in your weakness. And Paul says, then bring it on. Bring on the hard stuff. Bring on the necessities. Bring on the persecutions. Bring on the privations. Bring on the... Because when I am weak, then I am strong. He's saying what David is saying here. My boast is not in me. My boast is in God. There's a man that I've been involved with for the last year working with. He's a very precious guy. And 
he's a very winsome guy. He's a business owner. Uh, he's very successful, very beloved in our church. Three kids. And he came to me a year ago. And um, he said, I, I have to tell you what's been going on in my life. And he told me an astonishing, and literally, you feel like nothing can shock you after a while. I was wrong. He told me this story of his life and what he had been into. His wife had caught him. His wife's very involved in our ministry. She's a teacher in the women's ministry. And, uh, and he said, I've, I've been involved immorally. And as we really unpacked it all, habitually with prostitutes in our area. And I enter into a world that I didn't even know existed in my area. Uh, now I, I, there's, a, the, there's multiple holes, hotels in our area. I had no idea. Now, I, I, now one in particular, when I drive by, my mind thinks about stuff I didn't even know existed in my area, in a suburban Philadelphia suburb area. When he told me the story, I thought, this marriage is over. There's just no, where do you even start? The, the veneer of Christian experience that was so untrue in, 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 in his life. And I truly, by the incredible grace of God, after 12 months of four of us meet with him every Saturday morning, He's got a counselor that has just been unbelievable in the area of, of sexual addictions. Biblical counselor, just been unbelievable for him. But recently, this guy, I'm going to call him Bob, he's not Bob. Bob was sharing with the four of us, and, and the repentance, and the self-awareness, and the going deep to, you know, you don't just change that kind of sin by just saying, well, we're going to be your accountability group and we're going to keep you out of it. Just let us know. No, he's got to go way, way in, right? To go back to what was going on. What was I? Why did I need this? How could I? So many questions down to get to the root issues of idolatry and sin. But recently he was talking to us and he said, um, yeah, I really feel that I have learned some things and I feel like if somebody came to me with this there's some things I could share if nothing else to warn them but he said and I loved what he said he said but I've thought what would I tell people would have helped me like would I say you know because I thought, what would I say to somebody now to keep them from making the choices I made? And what would have helped me? And he said, I can't think of anything. He said, I love preaching. I lo and he said, but I loved sermons then. I love sermons now. But he said, there's no sermon that I think would have got through to me. And he went through honestly saying, I don't think there's anything that would have, would have delivered me. I was so, and, and I, I wrote down pretty, careful, pretty close to what he actually said. These are almost exactly his words. He says, there's nothing I can think of that would have reached me. I had to see the utter selfishness of my own heart to see how proud I was, which, very important, the external view of things. And how little I really felt I needed God. It was my total failure. And God's using it to lead me to Himself that is what changed me. And I, I was excited. Because I said, Matt. Oh, dang. Bob. <laughs> Harvey. Let me say a few more. So you, okay. I said, I said, Brother. This is your boast. 
I said, it's gonna, don't run home to your wife and say, man, thank God for, for what I did. But thank God for what he, did, what he allowed to happen to you because it brought you to the end of you. It caused you to say, I'm desperate for God. I need God every day. I need Him to, to fill my soul so I don't go to something else which is a, a temporary fix to just make me feel valued as a man or whatever, all the things, all kinds of things go into this. But I said, this sense of desperation you have, this is your boast. You boast in the Lord. You boast in Christ. It's why failure is God's gift, even as pastors, even as pastors' wives, even as parents, even as spouses, that God can use those moments to say, in your failure, there's a light that declares your insufficiency. It declares your need. It declares, just like Jesus said, that without me, you can do nothing. The longer I live, the, longer I, the more I'm beginning to realize when God says, without Him, I can do nothing, He meant, without Him, I can do nothing. I mean, I thought it was a nothing. It's, it's a nothing. And so David says, I, man, I, I, my soul makes its boast in one place, God. That's part of this process of being awed by God. It's why we can embrace those things which seem to be most traumatic. It's why even as Christians we can embrace our failures and our sins and say, okay, I don't want to live there. I don't want to choose sin. But thank God for how he uses that to become everything to me. We have a pastor's group, or have we stopped it a little, little while ago, temporarily. It's, it meets at our church. It's uh, lead pastors, just guys in our area. We just met once a week on Wednesday morning to pray. And it's all different sized churches. All, they're all evangelical churches, but we just meet together to pray and to cry out to God together. Usually read a passage of scripture and pray our way through it and God directs where it goes. But one time one of the guys that was there that was in a, a very small congregation and some of us are there with larger congregations and multiple staff and, and, and David came and he said, Mark, you know, he said, just thanks for including me in this group. You know, he said, look at you mentioned a couple of the, the guys' names, their churches, and, you know, they have whole staffs to pray with, and, 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 and I'm just honored to be. And I said, David, I said, you need, to, you need to remember one thing. Every one of us that are here are united on one thing. We are all convinced that we are in over our heads. And I said, you may think... That, that if a guy has a multiple staff and this going on, that they got... I said, they're desperate. And the moment they don't feel desperate, they're in a world of trouble. I said, it doesn't matter how many guys... How many, how many people are in your leadership team? How many people are in your worship service? Where we meet is we are in over our heads. God will see to it. You're all in over your heads. Thank God. Because the moment you start thinking, I got it, I'll take it from here, is when calamity strikes and you join my brother who's meeting with us on Saturday mornings. Maybe you won't end up there, but you'll end up somewhere. We live in awe. Every work of God in your city or your region that you look to, and you see God at work and that He's been at work and something there. Every ministry that is a beacon of life and light is a testimony to the power of God done in response to somebody who was desperate for God. Someone who is aware they were in over their heads, afraid, feeling their insufficiency, and made Himself, and, and God made Himself known. 
It wasn't that the guy down the street had all this leadership stuff or all these gifts. God uses all of that. But every work of God is in response to desperate, needy people in over their heads. God awes us there. Okay, number two. We cry humbly for God's help. Verse 4, 5, and 6, I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. David is modeling for us here three things. I sought the Lord, verse 4. Verse 5, those who look to Him. Verse 6, this poor man cried. He's crying out to God, and he tells us the Spirit, and he's talking about himself in verse 6. This poor man. The word poor is the word means it is translated in other passages, afflicted or humbled. Peter talks about this same thing, about crying out for God's help, being associated with humility. He says it this way in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. You know, there are two ways that you can become a humble person. One, God does it. He's very good at it. He brings, circum- right? he, he brings circumstances, He brings things in our lives that humble us. It's a mercy of God, although it isn't always a relished one. But you know there's another way to be humble? It's here in 1 Peter 5. It's the way we participate with humility. It's the answer I give when somebody comes to me and they say, Mark, you talk about being broken and being humbled. by. What if I've never been broken? I remember one young guy, a very successful young business guy, and he said, I love God, but I just, I don't don't feel broken. I don't feel desperate. I don't, you know, how do I humble myself? I don't know how to to do it. I, I took him to this passage. He says here that you are to humble yourselves. Okay, that's the command. But there's a participle here. And a participle, by the way, probably like a lot of you, that if you studied Greek, I never knew English until I studied Greek. That's when I finally figured out how our own language worked. And I found out that participles modify either nouns or or, or verbs. There's a participle here. It's the word casting. It is actually saying this, humble yourselves by casting your cares. What is he saying? He says, if you want to humble yourself, if you want to be a humble person, consistently be casting your cares. So the opposite of that is a proud person doesn't cast. Now the reason we don't cast our cares is because A, we don't want to think about them. We'd rather not. I mean, who wants to take a what I call a worry list, and write down 30 or all the things you're worried about, all the things bothering you, buzzing around your head, write them all down. Well, none of us want to do that because that, if you do that, then they're real. But we can ignore and carry. Or we can identify and cast. So he says, humbling yourself comes by doing what David did. This poor man cried. I cried to God. I went to God. I go to God. We go to God. We, we put our worry list together. All the things that we are thinking about, are concerned about. And then one by one, we give them over to God with thanksgiving as First Philippians 4 talks about. If you don't do that, if there are things right now, if you're just feeling weighed now and everything... I really am going to kill myself. Well, I can't clear everything out. Okay. The, if you've got all kinds of stuff going on, it's just like life is a general haze and a malaise of, ah, oh, it just feels dark. I'm so tired of things. The last thing you want to do is write down all the things that are bugging you. But it is the best thing you can do. To identify and cast. Otherwise, you are ignoring and you're carrying. So he tells us 
We cast our cares. It's part of giving that over. God becomes more central to us. The third thing, remember that fearing God is a choice. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The imperative in this section, after he's talking about how the angel of the Lord surrounds us, which again is another one of those visuals in Scripture of God's protective care surrounding us, but then he gives, O taste and see the Lord is good, and then this particular one in verse 9, the imperative, O fear the Lord, you as in saints. It is a choice to fear God. It is a choice to be awed by God. It is a continual process of choosing to fear God, to let God awe us in our crisis, in our afflictions, in our times of, of prosperity and, and, and those small moments when there don't seem to be as many difficulties going on around us. A default mode is not to fear God. It is to be influenced by other things. It's why David is in trouble here. Because at this moment in his life, he has given way to the other things that were going on in his life. He's become dominated to them. So, there's a constant call to intentionally focus on God, to fear God, to allow God to awe us with Himself. Now, David should have known this already, right? I mean, the guy at this point has already written a few psalms. He was the psalter to, to Saul. He knows the Lord. He's taken down Goliath and other army. He's got his ten thousands. But David still reminds us that our default mode is still to try to carry it ourselves. To try to process it through ourselves. And honestly... If there's not one thing that God does out of these three messages with you, I hope the one thing He'll do is to remind you, you need to let God be the one that awes you in your ministry. You need to bring it to God. Whatever verbiage you use, if you don't use the word letting Him awe, you need to, you need to worship. You need to be with God. You need to let Him be the, the source and strength of your life and ministry. Remember that fearing God is a choice. There's intention in it. Fourth, listen to the right voices. Verse 11, he says it this way, Come, O children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. It's easy to just go over that, but I think he's saying, listen to me. I got something here. I want to teach you the fear of the Lord. He said, I, I didn't listen to the right voices. I, did, I, I was conned. I gave way to my fears. Listen to me in this song you're singing. Listen to me and let it be louder than the voices you hear. You know it's said by psychiatrists, psychologists, excuse me, that study these kind of things, that the average person has 200 negative thoughts a day. A chronically depressed person has between five to 600 negative thoughts a day. That's a lot of messages of negativity. And some days it may feel like, well, man, I do that in the morning. But those are voices, right? They're speaking into us. We need to turn down the volume on the other voices. Now, we all have those voices. You get them from your childhood. You get them from your background. You, you, you get them from your, your culture. You, you get them from, from your church background. You get, you get them all over just a fallen nature has its own voices that are speaking into you. I mean, have you ever had to work hard to remind yourself of something dumb that you said a long time ago? No, it'll keep coming back. You'll, you'll keep, it'll, it'll come back in the worst moments to remind you, oh man, I'm going to do it again. Did you ever need a to-do list to overthink an embarrassing situation from the 8th grade, even though you're now in your 30s? Did you need a note in your calendar to make sure you'd spend the whole weekend thinking about why your boss called a meeting with you on Monday morning? Or you could say, the board has asked to meet with you Monday. No. Because those are voices. And they speak into us. 
So what, and, and they're like a playlist. You know how you form a playlist on your phone or your computer of just songs you'd like to have played, whether it's on uh, Spotify or something else. And it's just what you want to listen to. Well, we have playlists, and they play. And you don't have to turn them on. They just play, right? They're things they say to us. I'll tell you some of mine. I'm free to say them because you don't know me well, and I don't have to live with you and be scared how you're going to use this against me. But um, Playlists I'm listening to now that I have to give to the Lord, you will not have enough money to retire. That's a playlist for me. You don't have the skills to be an efficient leader. I've had that playlist for decades. And one that, quite honestly, is, is a hard one for me to even say. Um, I'm a person that needs space. Um, there are other pastors that I just admire. They just seem to have a people energy. They can just be for hours and energized. I can't. I, I, I spend... Uh, couple hours in, in a public setting or, or, or our whole Sunday morning, I go home spent. And the voice I hear is, you, your lack of people energy is a barrier too high to cross to be what you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. That's my playlist. I've heard it for years. I'm guessing you have your own playlist. And you could, you could put it down. If you don't, ask your wife or your husband. They'll probably be able to help you. They're real, right? They play. And I'll tell you, who knows your playlist very well, it is the enemy. And he's very good at sneaking that playlist in all of a sudden. And you're hearing that messaging. David did too. Paul did too. It's part of human brokenness that we hear those playlists. And the problem is, fear's a con artist. Man, it plays those songs loud sometimes. Deceives and distorts. To control our playlist, to control the voices, we need other people speaking into us. I think sometimes, and again, I'll say it for myself, but maybe it's true for you, there are times when I'm not good company for me. Uh, there are times when I, I'm out on my lawn tractor mowing, or we've got a couple acres, and I'm mowing our lawn, and uh, I need to have something else coming in. I don't want to have my own thoughts the whole time. That's not all the time, but every, there are times. I'm just not good company. I need other voices speaking into me. I can be pretty harsh with judgments, pretty condemning. Uh, I think many of us can. The playlists, are, they play dirty, and they're loud. I remember reading the story of Billy Joel. Again, I'm, this is way back. Billy Joel was a, a singer, and still is, I think. Um, Billy Joel, by the way, went to my high school. Uh, that's really his claim to fame. I went to Hicksville High School on Long Island, New York, and Billy Joel graduated from there as well. I regret to say, for his sake, he didn't know me. Um, but Billy Joel, what Billy Joel does with his songs, with his concerts, he got so worn out of doing concerts and looking down, and the people that were always in the front two rows were always the people, as he described them, as the bored rich people sitting in the front, that he actually changed his policy, and he takes those first two rows of seats, and he gives them to some of his most enthusiastic fans. He does it in every concert. He just wants to be surrounded by encouragers. Hey, you need encouragers in your, in your life. You need people that are not just energy takers. They're energy givers. They're people that will say to you, man, you're, that's not true, Mark. What you're hearing isn't true. Or, man, I just appreciate you. I, we're so grateful. They're, they're, I don't mean glad-handers. They're people that will speak truth. You need truth-tellers. But they're truth-tellers that are not just coming and the truth that they want to share is the fact that the color in the worship center that has been chosen is terrible. And I don't know if I can even worship in a place. You don't need that truth-teller all the time. I'm talking about truth-tellers that will speak into you. 
We also need to be listening most of all to the voice of God. This is what I think David is proposing. This psalm is being written to help them be awed by God, to think rightly. I heard a sermon recently, and I loved what the guy said, and I think it's a, it's a fantastic visual. He said, every difficult circumstance that comes into our life comes like an email. And it comes like emails come. It always comes with two attachments. You know, there are attachments that come, you click the file and open it up. And he said, one, one with this difficult email, this difficult circumstance, maybe this suffering that's going on in your life, one attachment is from the enemy. One attachment is from God. Every single situation you have is going to come with those two attachments. Our calling is to listen to the right voice. Because there will be that voice that will pop in and, and it'll sound ominously just like your playlist. Or there can be the playlist of God where He's speaking in. This is true. I'm sovereign. Some of the things you guys have beautifully shared in some of these sessions, just how the Lord and the worship team has so effectively reminded us of God in the midst of all things. The last thing, verse 12 through 14 He's just said in verse 11, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Being a God-fearer is being a God-obeyer. Another guy from our staff came to me last Monday. Um, He'd been away with his wife. She's from Florida. She'd gone, they'd taken the weekend to visit. And he asked, he, he actually met with a couple of other guys, and then he, he, he met with, we were just meeting about something, and, and he said, can I just talk to you about something? Ask you to pray. I said, sure. And he said, uh, he's a very trim, he's actually pretty on the thin side, like no body fat type of guy. And he said, uh, he said, one of my sins, and he said, whenever I tell people this, they usually laugh at me, but he said, one of my sins is gluttony. And he said, this past weekend I was away with my wife, and uh, he said, I just, I ate like a pig. I just, I just ate, there's all this food, we were watching games, and he said, I just kept eating and eating, and, and he said, and I just ate more than I needed to. And I felt uncomfortable. And then the next day, Sunday came, we went to church. We, and he said, before we got our flight, I just ate. And, and, and he said, I knew. I just ate so much that I didn't need to eat just because it was good and it was fun and everybody's eating. And he said, and I told my wife, and, and she is a great encourager. And she said, well, no, you know, you're not, you, 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 nobody noticed you were overeating. He said, no, I felt like I was selfish in, in, in the way I behaved. I just, she said, I, I didn't feel, and he says, so, you know, uh, but I knew, I knew that I was just consumed with this. And then he talked about this. He said, it bothers me because I know Paul says all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. You know, that's what he says in 1 Corinthians. And he said, it's permissible to eat, but the way I ate, I don't want to eat because I felt like I was displeasing God. I was so proud of him. And I just said, I, I just, uh, this verse actually came to my mind. To be a God-fearer, you're a God-obeyer. And I'm not saying everybody should, now this, change your eating style, I have no idea. I, I'm just saying, if we're really trying to live our lives under the authority of Jesus and live to the glory of God where He is central to us, part of that is we're going to let Him in and say things to us. And there will be things that He tells you Others can. You can't. I think that's what convictions are all about. That's why I don't think anybody, I don't think Christians all need to have the exact same convictions. 
Otherwise, what do we need the Holy Spirit for? We've got our church to tell us these are all of our personal convictions. But there's going to, where the real test is going to be was when you have a conviction and other people don't. And you can't explain it. You can't say, no, I'm not saying you're wrong. I mean, no, because I can't eat that much doesn't mean that you're wrong. But for him, he's just saying, for me, God said this isn't beneficial. There's going to be things like that. And part of being a God-fearer is being a God-obeyer. Okay, I'm ending here. Why, do we, why is it even important to fear God in the way we're talking? Well, three quick things, and this is free, it's not in the notes. Three C's. We don't end as a poem. I think it was Jim said, we're not doing a poem, but we'll, we'll alliterate, of course. Number one, the fruit of fearing God, of letting God awe you, is contentment. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. Secondly, confidence. Psalm 112, verse 11, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. That leads into verse 7, which is in the context. It says, He has no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Man, he has no fear of bad news. Why? Because God is so consuming his gaze that those other things are lessened in significance because he sees them through the bigness of God. The last one is courage. Jesus in the garden, overwhelmed with a suffering that he acutely was aware that he was going into, which a lot of times is the worst part of suffering, right? When you anticipate what it's going to be. Only he anticipated it rightly. But in Isaiah 11:2, when it's talking about Jesus and his being the servant among us, it says Jesus delighted in the fear of God. Because he delighted in the fear of God. The Father's love and doing what pleased Him mattered most. He had courage to do the passion. The bigger God is to us in His goodness and His greatness, the more contentment, the more confidence, the more courage we will have to be and do what He's calling us to be. Lord, thanks 